What you would have expected would be the Ancient of Days to put an end to his enemies. But that's not what you're shown. What you're shown is the Ancient of Days giving the kingdom to another. Today we continue on with chapter 7 and we come to this part of the the chapter, it's actually in two parts here, that will narrate to us the part of the vision that occurs not on earth but in heaven. So what we're faced with this week is we need to spend just a moment or two to regain the train of thought, especially in a passage like this because again this is a picture book and it's intended to speak powerfully to your emotions. And so we need to sort of restart that. So just to remind ourselves, Daniel is given this vision of these four hideous beasts. The beast of the lion with the eagle's wings, the beast of the bear with the voracious appetite, the uh, leopard, left me right there for a second, the leopard with four heads and four, four wings, and then the final beast which is so hideous that it doesn't even have a name. It doesn't even have an earthly equivalent to what could describe it. And these four beasts are all waging war against the people of God. The final beast wages war to the greatest degree. He is described, this beast is described as being incredibly bloodthirsty, incredibly dangerous, incredibly violent, stamping out the saints of God with his feet. But then these ten horns are described on this beast, and then finally there's another horn, a little horn, that comes up that displaces three of those horns. And so we talked about how this represents these four kingdoms, and the final kingdom being the kingdom of Rome. But the kingdom of Rome was a prototype of all of the kingdoms of man that were to come. The kingdom of Rome was the one in power when Jesus walked the earth. The kingdom of Babylon, which was the first beast, was the first kingdom of evil. Nebuchadnezzar was the first king of the kingdom of evil. And then the kingdom that was in power in Jesus' day is the one that represents those kingdoms until the end of the age, the ten horns representing that. And so from God's vision, this is speaking to us of beastly kingdoms. Again, not all of them are equally beastly, but all of them are opposed to the kingdom of God ultimately. And so Daniel sees this vision, and in this vision he's incredibly disturbed by what he sees. He's emotionally distraught over the carnage that he sees being wreaked upon the people of God. And so we sometimes read back through that account and read these pictures of these hideous beasts and we can understand just what a violent sort of beast that is, but we lack the emotional connection that Daniel experienced. And the best way that I can relate to that is maybe like a dream. You ever have a dream that's a terrifying sort of dream and then you wake up and you remember the dream and you recount the details in your mind and you're you're like, what was so scary about that? You ever had that happen to you? That's a typical thing to happen because dreams are very emotional sorts of things. Now, Daniel wasn't having a dream. He was receiving a vision from God and the two things are completely different. But that's the best way as one who's never received visions from God, that's the best way that I can relate to what Daniel experiences. God is communicating to him this powerful message of the power of the kingdom of evil 
and ultimately His greater power to deliver His people through that. But at the conclusion of this first section of earthly sorts of visions, Daniel then, in verse 9, moves into the second part of the vision. So that's what we're to have in our minds and in our hearts, really, is just this this incredible level of anxiety, of unsettledness over what he's seen being done to the people of God. And not so much the people of God of his day, but he understands that these are things to be done to the people of God in the future, according to him. So, in that context, we now come to verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now that should stand as the starkest of contrasts. As we have experienced nothing but chaos and bloodshed and death and violence and injustice, then suddenly Daniel's focus is transported to not just the abode of God, but we're told the place where God's thrones are. So this is the throne room. All Scripture is holy. All Scripture is equally inspired of God. But nevertheless, all Scripture does not come to us saying the same things to us. And so this is a passage of Scripture that if I could communicate this to you, I would communicate to you, you should feel that you are in the presence of something extraordinarily holy. Again, all Scripture is holy. We we don't worship the page, the pages of the book or the book or the words on the page. We, we We worship the God of the message. But nevertheless, to stand before this message should create within us a sense of being in the presence of something incredibly holy and reverential. Because what Daniel is now seeing is not just the abode of God. What Daniel is seeing is what we would call the throne room of God. Heaven, we are led to believe, has varying degrees of holiness according to what parts you're in. We know this because we are taught about the tabernacle. Hopefully one day we would have the opportunity to go through a teaching of the tabernacle. And you'd be fascinated at the tabernacle that God gave to His people in the Old Covenant. But the tabernacle is given to God's people for one specific purpose. And that purpose is to be a copy of heaven. We're told that in several instances in the Scriptures that the tabernacle is a copy of heaven. And everything about the tabernacle is intended to represent a reality in heaven. And so when you think about the tabernacle, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The holy of holies. That was the innermost chamber. That was the holiest of all. All of the tabernacle grounds were holy. But as you approach the inner sanctum, the holiness increased drastically. And that inner cube, that inner section known as the Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was was kept, which was the symbolic, some might even say the actual presence of God. And so that was the holiest place of the tabernacle. That coincides with the throne room of the abode of God that we would call heaven. 
And so here in this throne room would be the holiest place of all, where we're told that not only is God there, but there are thrones set up, and we're going to be told that God is sitting on one of those thrones. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the magnitude of what Daniel is seeing here, immediately after seeing the most hideous beast of all stamping upon the saints of God, what Daniel must have felt at that moment, I don't think there are words to put that into. I don't think Daniel would have said there's words to put that into. He himself at the end of this chapter said, my thoughts disturbed me. I just didn't know how to process this. So here Daniel is looking upon what would coincide to the Holy of Holies, but not the copy on earth. He's looking into the actual thing in heaven. Now, there have been others who have seen heaven. Paul, we don't know what part of heaven he saw specifically. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. His vision of heaven would lead us to believe that he also saw the throne room as well, because in Isaiah 6 he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne. So what an incredible thing that Daniel here is seeing, this most holy of places. As I looked, thrones were placed. Now thrones is plural, so there's more than one, but there's only one that's occupied, and Daniel's focus is going to be intently upon that one throne that's occupied. We're not told specifically why there are other thrones there, but if you want to sort of think ahead, you can look at verse 27. We won't get there today, but you can look at verse 27. I think verse 27 explains why there's multiple thrones there, but that's beside the point right now. So their thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days is just an incredibly poetic way of describing God the Father. The Ancient of Days. Doesn't that even just have just a beautiful Hebrew ring to it? The Ancient of Days. But that term, Ancient of Days, it of course speaks to us of more than just a poetic phrase that we would call God. It speaks to us of the God who has no beginning, the God who always has been, the God who created time, space, and matter. And because He created time, space, and matter, He's necessarily external to time, space, and matter. So He has always, He's never had a beginning. He has always been and always will be. This is the ancient of days, but it also speaks to us of more than just that. This speaks to us of a level of honor and respect that quite honestly is lost on us today because we live in a society today that honors and respects youth. Daniel lived in a society that was the reverse of that, that honored and respected age. Now that's hard for us to relate to because your whole life you've been taught by the society around you to worship youthfulness, to worship youthful looks and youthful attitudes. And even today we've taken this to to whole different lengths today as we celebrate people who should be acting like adults that are still acting like kids because we're obsessed with youthfulness. Daniel lived in a culture that was the polar opposite of that. In Daniel's culture, they didn't respect youthfulness. They disrespected youthfulness and they respected age. So in Daniel's culture, the goal wasn't to stay young. The goal was to get old and to gain wisdom, and to gain respect. 
So this term ancient of days speaks of one who has achieved the infinite maximum degree of such a respect from a society that respects age and wisdom. The ancient of days. And then we read, he took his seat. Now, the splendor and the majesty of what Daniel sees as the ancient of days takes his seat. Again, would be difficult to describe. Just, you just think of, of the majesty of some type of royalty entering in and taking a seat. Maybe you could compare it to a judge, even though that's a really weak comparison, a judge, everybody rises and the judge comes and takes the seat and then his court is in session. Something far, far above that. I'm not old enough to remember the coronation of uh, Queen Elizabeth. Maybe some of you remember. I, I believe that was broadcast on TV at the time. When was that? 50s? Early 50s? You were there, weren't you? So that something like that, that just this ceremony of here is this royalty being crowned, and then here is this picture of the Ancient of Days who comes in and takes the seat. Daniel's attention is fixated upon the Ancient of Days, and he continues, his clothing was white as snow. That just speaks to us quite plainly of purity, of a purity, you know how snow can be blinding, that it's so white. If there's light around it, it just can be blinding. And so this is the purity of the ancient of days. He's so pure that his pureness would blind you. And his hair was, the hair of his head was like pure wool. Again, it speaks to us of a purity, but it also speaks to us of just an an elderly status, an ancient status in which it's not just the gray hair, but it's the pure wool white hair. This is a picture fitting The ancient of days, is it not? His throne was fiery flames. So here we see just once again how consistently the Scriptures tie together fire and the appearance of God. There's too many places to name. I'll put a few in your notes here. But it's literally all over your Bibles. The connection between the appearance of God and fire. Particularly when God appears in the position of judgment which he is in now. This is a position of judgment. But just a few of these, of course, Moses meets God at the bush and the bush is on fire or or, or burning but not consumed. Malachi 4 verse 1, that uh, the day is coming that thou shalt... They shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. Or Psalm 50 verse 3, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Or Exodus 19, that's the imagery of the Mount Sinai with the fire and the smoke and the trembling and the trumpets. And of course, Hebrews 12 and verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. And we could literally go on and on because the Scriptures go out of their way to make this connection between fire and the appearing of God, particularly the appearing of God when He's there to judge. But this is not just any fire. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So why does God's throne have wheels? We're not told, but you might connect that together with something that's prevalent in the prophet Ezekiel. I think it's, I didn't count them, but I think it's somewhere around a dozen times that Ezekiel mentions wheels, and he too never explains them or describes them. But the best that scholars can sort of put together is that in ancient times, oftentimes thrones were associated with a chariot. 
This chariot would be the idea of a mobile throne, a moving throne. Maybe it's something of that nature. But, but in either case, the throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Now that's just literally the largest number that the Aramaic language had a word for squared. 10,000 times 10,000. That's just a way of saying the biggest possible value that that language could express with a word. And so there's these 10,000 times 10,000 that are standing before Him and serving Him. Now notice something different about the 10,000 times 10,000 is that they, unlike the beasts, did not come from the sea. So that leads us to believe that this 10,000 times 10,000 is probably not those saints who are now with the Lord, but instead these would probably be something like angelic beings, 10,000 times 10,000 that are there to serve Him. In fact, a little bit later in the vision, we talked about this part last week, but a little bit later in the vision, Daniel is going to ask one of those standing near him to explain something. And so it's probably this angel, this angelic being that he asks to explain a certain aspect of the vision. So 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Now that opening of the books says a couple things to us. First, it reminds me of the writing on the wall from chapter 5. But it also says to me that God's standard is unchanging because there's a book to open. God doesn't just say, let me see about this. What do I think about this? What do I want to make out of this? There's a book to open. And that book contains the standard of God that is unchanging forever and forever. So we see just what a connection the Word of God makes to the books of God. Here's some instances in your notes from Exodus 32 and verse 32. Uh, Moses says, please blot me out of your book that you've written. If you won't forgive the sins of your people, then blot me out of your book too, says Moses. Psalm 56 in verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not kept in your book? Or Malachi 3 in verse 16, the Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Or we continue Philippians 4 in verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, Sisychus. Remember Sisychus? That was a couple of years ago. Sisychus in Philippians 4. I ask you also, Sisychus, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And then, of course, who could, who could forget the six occasions in Revelation in which the book of life is mentioned here, chapter 20, 21 and verse 27, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life are there. So the book of life, the book of the Lord, is something that is prevalently found in Scripture, and this is found here as he opens the book. And so now, upon opening of the book, judgment now begins. So then we revert back to earth. So he looks, and his attention is distracted now from the ancient of days. And what distracts his attention? The pompous, blasphemous words of the little horn, which represents the Antichrist. So that speaks to us something of just how hideous to God is the sin of blasphemy. We've talked about this a couple of times in the recent weeks, about how blasphemy is the apex, it's the climax of the expression of sin. 
Sin cannot be expressed any more vividly than with the sin of blasphemy. So here the little horn is blaspheming the Lord, and it's so regrettable, so to speak, that it even distracts Daniel's attention from the Ancient of Days. So now, seeing that, let's look down to verse 13, and we'll pick back up with the vision as it continues in the heavens. I saw, or might be translated, I continued to see. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. At that moment, you missed it. But something stunningly unexpected just happened. You missed it because your entire Christian life, you have been familiar with the doctrine that the kingdom is given to Christ. But if you were a contemporary of Daniel, or if you were Daniel himself seeing this vision, or if you were reading this account in Daniel's lifetime, you would have had your socks knocked off. Because what you were expecting wasn't this. What you would have been expecting after the visions of the four beasts and after the incredible emotional turmoil that you endured seeing these four beasts stamping the saints of God and the blasphemous words from the little horn, and now your attention was diverted to the Ancient of Days, what you would have expected would be the Ancient of Days to put an end to His enemies. But that's not what you're shown. What you're shown is the Ancient of Days giving the kingdom to another. That, to this point, is unheard of in the Scriptures. This is why, this section beginning from verse 13, this is why this is the climax of all of our Old Testament Scriptures. Because this section of Scripture is going to give us more revelation about the Christ than the rest of the Old Testament put together. So this says to us, we were expecting, again, if you were in that contemporary setting and you didn't know that the New Testament teaches that the kingdom is Christ's, you would have been completely expecting the Ancient of Days to say, enough, down with you, now back to my kingdom. But instead... The kingdom is given to another, and not just any other, it's given to one like a son of man. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.